It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Friday, May 29, 2020. On this date in history, Friday, May 29, 1953, Edmund Hillary of New Zealand and Tenzig Norgay, a Sherpa of Nepal, became the first explorers to reach the summit of Mount Everest. Now, the summit of Mount Everest is 29,035 feet above sea level, and it's the highest point on Earth. But that's a big number, so let's put this in context. Placeville Marie in downtown Montreal is 617 feet tall. So you'd need to stack up 47 Placeville Maries, one on top of another, to reach the height of Mount Everest. Or to put it another way, if Mount Everest was a skyscraper, it would have more than 1,700 floors and zero washrooms. Or maybe unlimited washrooms. I guess it all depends how you think about it. Now, while they reached the summit on May 29, they weren't able to tell anybody about it immediately. So news took a few days to get out. In fact, the world first learned of this accomplishment on June 2, 1953, which was, of course, the coronation day of Queen Elizabeth II. On today's episode of the Cote St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast, we have a musical moment with music librarian Farah Muhammad. Little did I know, the Lindy Hop is a fast-paced, frenetic dance that originated in Afro-American communities in Harlem, New York City, during the 1920s. On Book Talking with librarian Marade Stevenson, She'll be discussing four books you can read. The second book I will be talking about is Love and Other Words by Christina Lauren. Eleven years ago, he broke her heart, but he doesn't know why she never forgave him. Toggling between past and present, two love stories unfold simultaneously. Movie and TV librarian Stephen Tomlinson is back, and he has more TV and movie recommendations, including drive-in movie theaters in our area. Now, what drive-ins there are have all been closed this spring because of the pandemic. But they're allowed to reopen today. And the largest, closest, and most venerable of these, with five screens and room for more than 3,000 cars, is the Cinepark St. Eustache. But we begin today's episode with a brief song. Today's Corona Serenade is Paolo Tosti's Puen Bezier, sung by tenor Niels Brown. Thank you. 
My name is Mairead, and I am the Collections and eServices Coordinator at the Library. Today I will be discussing five books with you. The first book I'll be talking about is Closer Than You Know by Brad Parks. This is the first book that I've read by Parks, and I am sold. It is an intricately plotted, fast-paced thriller that involves every parent's worst nightmare, and Parks knows how to get readers to empathize emotionally with his characters while amping up the tension and suspense from the very first page. Having endured a brutal foster care upbringing, Melanie Barrick embarks on an adult life that she hopes will allow her to leave her past behind. However, that all changes when one day she arrives in the evening to pick up her infant son Alex from daycare, only to learn that social services had been there earlier and has taken him into protective custody. Unable to get answers from the agency directly as the office is closed, Melanie arrives home in a panic to discover that the sheriff's deputies acting on an anonymous tip, have raided her house and have found enough cocaine to keep Melanie in prison for years. She has no idea what's going on, and of course, nobody believes in her innocence. In short order, Melanie is arrested for assaulting a police officer, hauled off to jail, and threatened with five years in prison. Her social services hearing is over before it begins, and the preliminary hearing on the criminal charges goes no better. Things couldn't possibly get any worse unless she finds out that her devoted husband, Ben, has been lying to her for months about a very important subject, and now, on top of everything else, she's charged, charged with the murder of a man she's only seen once before. Assigned to prosecute Melanie's case, Deputy Commonwealth's attorney Amy Kay is also obsessed with cracking a cold case against a serial rapist. While the secondary storyline is interesting, it is Melanie's fate to recover everything she loves, how she fights her way back makes this novel truly special. Parks excels at keeping the pages turning with brisk pacing, relentlessly high tension, and a naughty narrative. The second book I will be talking about is Love and Other Words by Christina Lauren. Eleven years ago, he broke her heart, but he doesn't know why she never forgave him. Toggling between past and present, two love stories unfold simultaneously. In the first, Macy Sorensen meets and falls in love with the boy next door, Elliot Petropoulos, in the closet of her dad's vacation home, where they hide out to discuss their favorite books. In the second, Macy is working as a doctor and is engaged to a single father, and she hasn't spoken to Elliot since their breakup. But a chance encounter forces her to confront the truth. What happened to make Macy stop speaking to Elliot? Ultimately, they're separated, not by time or physical remoteness, but by emotional distance. Elliot and Macy always kept the relationship casual because they went to different schools. And as a teen, Macy had more to worry about than which girl Elliot is taking to the prom. After losing her mother at a young age, Macy is navigating her teenage years without a female role model, relying on the time-stamped notes her mother left in her father's care for guidance. 
In the present day, Macy's father is dead as well. She throws herself into her work and rarely comes up for air, not even to plan her upcoming wedding. Since Macy is still living with her fiancé while grappling with her feelings for Elliot, the flashbacks offer steamy moments, tender revelations, and sweetly awkward confessions, while Macy makes peace with her past and decides her future. Love, in other words, brings to life a romance that stands the test of hardship and time and will restore anyone's faith in love. This is a more leisurely paced book with the tender romantic moments of first love. I found myself cheering for Elliot and Macy. The third book I will be speaking about is House on Fire by Bonnie Kessler. This is Kessler's debut novel. Lee Hewitt is a divorce lawyer and she knows better than anyone how easily marriages fail. She's five years into her second marriage with Pete, and they are beating the odds. Their blended family is what many would aspire to. Pete's son, high school senior Kip, has been grounded since the state of Virginia suspended his license for operating under the influence. But tomorrow is Kip's 18th birthday, and Pete and Lee are out of town, so Kip borrows Pete's truck and attends a party at a friend's house. As Lee and Peter drive home on a rainy night, they get a phone call. Just before midnight, Lee's 14-year-old daughter Chrissy finds Kip at the party to warn him that their parents are on the way home. Kip had ignored her phone calls, so she biked through the rain to warn him. Racing home, the kids swerved to avoid a dog and hit a tree. Although, da- although the damage is minimal, the truck is stuck, prompting a neighbor to call 911 and the police to arrest Kip, who has been drinking. Lee hires her best friend from law school to defend Kip against what they presume will be minor charges. But the next day, Chrissy suffers a cerebral hemorrhage and dies. Kip now claims he is innocent of manslaughter because, contrary to what he told the police, Chrissy was the one driving when they crashed. Pete believes him, but Lee accuses Kip of lying to save himself. Can the once perfectly blended family survive the truth, whatever it may be? I liked this book because it is suspenseful, thought-provoking, and it had an intricate plot with an unexpected ending. The fourth book I'm going to speak about is The Girl He Used to Know by Tracy Jarvis Greaves. Annika Rose is different from other people. She's much more comfortable with solitude and would much rather be in the company of animals, hiding under her comforter and reading a book or getting lost in a competitive game of chess than spending time with other people. She dreams of life as a librarian surrounded by books, but she often doesn't notice social cues, and she wishes that people would be more direct about what they think and feel rather than make her figure it out. Luckily, Annika has her roommate, Janice, to help her navigate through the confusing and anxiety-provoking world of college. Annika meets Jonathan in her senior year at a meeting of the school's chess club. She can't quite understand why he's interested in talking to her, or continuing to play her once she beat him badly. But Jonathan keeps coming back, and after a while he makes it clear that he's interested in Annika, and he's willing to help calm her fears and understand the things that make her nervous or anxious, because he wants a relationship with her. The two fall deeply in love and begin to plan a future together in New York City. When after graduation Annika doesn't follow him as they had planned, Jonathan is heartbroken. Ten years after they ended the relationship, Annika and Jonathan run into one another at a Chicago grocery store. Jonathan is newly divorced and wary of their mutual renewed spark and has yet to deal with their unresolved past. 
As her relationship evolves, Annika wants to prove that she's changed for the better and won't give in to the urge to hide when things go wrong. Can a relationship that was so intense the first time pick up where it left off after so much has transpired between them? Is Jonathan still willing to accept Annika the way she is? Can they move past the things that drove them apart? And can they finally have the future they've always dreamed of? The narrative switches between 1991 and 2001, alternating between Annika and Jonathan's earlier relationship and back to 2001 where they are trying to put the pieces back together from what broke them up in the past. I loved this book so much because it was an enjoyable, light read with likable characters and a compelling romance and a little heart-wrenching twist towards the end. I've saved my favorite book for last, Maud, a novel inspired by the life of Lucy Maud Montgomery by Melanie Fishbane. This is the perfect book for anyone who, like me, is an Anna Green Gables fan. Maud, based on the early teen years of Lucy Maud Montgomery, opens in 1889, when the Anna Green Gables author is 14. Motherless and with an absent father, Maud lives with her strict maternal grandparents in picturesque Cavendish Prince Edward Island. Though life at home is full of obligations and duties, Maud finds distraction and excitement with her tight-knit circle of friends. She excels in school and aspires to be a published writer, though her options are severely limited because of her gender. As her grandparents remind her, Maud's goal should be to obtain a suitable husband. The story follows Maud as she reluctantly leaves the island for the newly developing territory of Saskatchewan to live with her father and his new family, and then returns to her beloved Cavendish when things go sour. The novel ends in 1892, but an addendum provides a summary of Maud's later years. Fishbane's admiration for Montgomery is apparent throughout, and her descriptive writing style is reminiscent of the author's. The third-person narrative is filled with vivid descriptions of the natural beauty of the island and the untamed yet scenic Saskatchewan. Secondary characters are fully drawn and their interactions detailed and rich. The author effectively evokes Maud's loneliness at having no true place to call home, despite her rather large extended family. Fishbane lovingly captures the small town charm of Maud's Prince Edward Island home and the rugged frontier of Saskatchewan, while etching an affecting portrait of a young woman determined to follow her heart and be something more at a time when options for women were few. Fans of Montgomery's novel will recognize much of Maud's life in that of Anne and Emily, but even readers not familiar with those books will be easily drawn into her world. Throughout this book, I really felt for Maud. Her mother died when she was quite young. Her maternal grandparents, who are raising her, have nothing nice to say about her father. Her father goes out west to start a new life, and even when she goes to live with him, his new wife treats her badly and tries to marry her off, and she ends up going back to live with her grandparents in PEI. But throughout it all, she knows what she wants, and she is relentless in pursuing it, even against her grandparents' wishes and even society's views of women at the time. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy these books if you choose to read them. Take care and be safe. Well, hello there, and welcome to another musical moment. My name is Farah Mohammed, and today we will be swinging with the Lindy Hop. Did you know that World Lindy Hop Day is celebrated on May 26th of every year? Sure, okay. But what is the Lindy Hop exactly? 
Little did I know, the Lindy Hop is a fast-paced, frenetic dance that originated in Afro-American communities in Harlem, New York City, during the 1920s. Now, Frankie Manning, who was an American dancer, dance instructor, and choreographer, was considered to be one of the founders of the Lindy Hop. The Lindy Hop became synonymous with that energetic form of jazz dance known as swing. And the significance of May 26th? Well, that's Frankie Manning's birth date, May 26th, 1914. What better way than to honor one of the most influential people in swing dance history? The first dances named as the Lindy Hop evolved around the time aviator Charles Lindbergh made his groundbreaking flight across the Atlantic Ocean in May 1927. Some say the name commemorates Lindbergh's quote-unquote hop across the Atlantic in a plane the first time that feat was accomplished alone. In any case, once it caught on, it took over like wildfire. Tightly entwined, the style of dance coupled with the development of swing music was a combustible combination. Don't forget, during the 1930s and 40s, this was the era of speakeasies, rum running and bathtub gin, dance halls, rival swing bands, and the need to let off steam. So roll back the rug, put on your dancing shoes, and let's get started. Here's a number to get you all warmed up. Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy by the Andrews Sisters. The Andrews Sisters was an all-American singing group of swing and boogie-woogie eras. The group consisted of three sisters, Laverne, Maxine, and Patty. Throughout their career, the sisters sold over 75 million records. Their hit, Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy, can be considered an early example of rhythm and blues, or jump blues. Just listen to how extraordinarily together they are when singing. It's as if they were just one voice. Do, 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 do
sleep with Boogie every night And wakes them up the same way in the early bright They clap their hands and stamp their feet Because they know how he plays when someone gives him a beat He really breaks it up when he plays Reveille He's a Boogie Boogie Bugle Boy of Company B Now that we're a little bit in the mood, my next number is by Glenn Miller. Glenn Miller was an American big band trombonist, arranger, composer, and band leader in the swing era. He was best-selling recording artist from 1939 to 1942, leading one of the best-known big bands. While he was traveling to entertain U.S. troops in France during World War II, Miller's aircraft disappeared in bad weather over the English Channel. His recordings include such hits as Moonlight Serenade, Pennsylvania 65000, and Chattanooga Choo Choo. However, he is probably best known for this primal number, In the Mood. We hear the golden voice from the queen of jazz, Miss Ella Fitzgerald. 
She was noted for her purity of tone, impeccable diction, phrasing, timing, intonation, and a horn-like improvisational ability, particularly in her scat singing. After a troubled childhood and tumultuous adolescence, Fitzgerald found stability in musical success with the Chick Webb Orchestra, performing across the country, but most often associated with the Savoy Ballroom in Harlem. Her rendition of the nursery rhyme, A Tisket, A Tasket, helped to boost both her and Webb to national fame. did it all. American singer, actor, and producer, who was one of the most popular and influential musical artists of the 20th century. Not only was he a Hollywood A-lister, he palled around with the infamous Rat Pack, hobnobbed with America's first family, and dated the most beautiful women in the world. He was everywhere, and he did everything. You make me feel so young, is a cool and easy swing number composed by Joseph Myro with lyrics written by Mac Gordon in 1946. It was recorded by Frank Sinatra in 1956 
and performed frequently throughout his career. You make me feel so young You make me feel so spring has sprung And every time I see you grin I'm such a happy individual The moment that you speak I want to go play hide and seek I want to go and bounce the moon Just like a toy balloon And I are just like a couple of tots Running across a meadow Picking up lots of forget-me-nots You make me feel so young You make me feel there are songs to be sung Bells to be rung And a wonderful fling to be flung And even when I'm old and I'm gonna feel the way I do today Cause you make me feel so young You make me feel so young You make me feel so spring has sprung And every time I see you grin I'm such a happy individual the moment that you speak I want to go and play hide and seek I want to go and bounce the moon Just like a toy balloon You and I Are just like a couple of tots Running across a meadow Picking up lots of forget-me-nots You make me feel so young You make me feel there are songs to be sung Bells to be rung Wonderful fling to be flung And even when I'm old and gray I'm gonna feel the way I do today Cause you, you make me feel so young You make me feel so young You make me feel so young Ooh, you make me feel so young My last selection is a fiery, upbeat number by American jazz clarinetist and bandleader Benjamin David Goodman, otherwise known as Benny Goodman. Hailed as the King of Swing, Benny Goodman led one of the most popular music groups in the 1930s. His concert at Carnegie Hall in New York City on January 16, 1938, is described by one critic, and I quote, the single most important jazz or popular music concert in history, jazz's coming out party to the world of respectable music. Goodman's band started the careers of many jazz musicians. Breaking barriers in an era of racial segregation, he led one of the first integrated jazz groups. He performed nearly to the end of his life while exploring new interests in classical music. 
So let's hear Sing, Sing, Sing and listen for the primal driving jungle rhythms of the percussion section as it supports the controlled yet fevered woodwinds and brass sections. Most definitely, this is swing at its finest. That left me breathless. I hope that you've enjoyed our celebration of World Lindy Hop Day. It's nice to know that the artistry of this dance form, as well as swing music in general, are gaining such popularity in today's world. With its undeniable vitality and exhilarating creative spirit, it certainly guarantees feeling connected with others 
as well as promote well-being within ourselves. So don't wait for another year to go by before listening to some more swing. This music is just too good. Kick up your heels once in a while, and as that old adage goes, dance like nobody's watching. I guarantee that it will do you a world of good. So until next time, bye for now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. And for the next 20 minutes, I'm going to provide some recommendations for what to watch and where to watch it in relation to movies, television, and internet streaming content. I'll be discussing the new Netflix movie, The Lovebirds, as well as other romantic comedies, both new and old, plus some recent series from Israel, in addition to upcoming programming this week on television. But first, drive-in movie theaters. Many of us who have been to the drive-in as children remember clearly the experience of being a kid looking up at that great big movie screen, something bigger than life itself. Drive-in theaters really were a summertime ritual for many of us, and it almost didn't matter what was playing. For a young person like me in the 1970s, the movie was almost secondary to the thrill of the drive-in experience itself, which was uniquely different from that of an indoor theater. Today, drive-ins are harder to find, and there are only a handful in Quebec, none in Montreal, all known as cineparks. But with indoor movie theaters closed, they are making a modest comeback, with people eager to get out and have some fun. Now, what drive-ins there are have all been closed this spring because of the pandemic, but they're allowed to reopen today. And the largest, closest, and most venerable of these, with five screens and room for more than 3,000 cars, is the Cinepark Saint-Eustache. But the biggest challenge, I should think, will not be the social distancing involved, but finding new films to play as movie distributors have stopped distributing them. So most likely, these will be recent films from last year, popular, but not brand new. Nevertheless, movies will start at dusk with a double feature in English every Thursday night. Admission is $10 per person, $7 for seniors, children under 12 are admitted free. You can call 450-472-6660 for more information, especially to confirm screenings about what's coming up at the Cinepark St. Eustache. Now let's turn to romantic comedies, which are an undervalued genre. Let's face it, they just don't make them like they used to with even very fine ones today, often described as guilty pleasures. But that's always a nonsense term, I think, given that no pleasure is without some value or grace, least of all these days. I mean, under lockdown, I think we're more inclined towards wanting to watch romantic comedies, even mediocre ones, if for no other reason than to sink ourselves into the familiar warmth of stories driven by love and tenderness, and where everything tends to turn out just fine. And there's a new one on Netflix this week, The Lovebirds, starring Issa Rae and Kumai Nanjiani, as a couple who go on the worst date night ever after getting unintentionally embroiled in a murder mystery. Now, I think the difference between a good romantic comedy and a bad romantic comedy usually comes down to the effort invested in making the characters feel real. And to its credit, The Lovebirds puts in that effort, so it pays off. 
Directed by Michael Showalter, who did The Big Sick, also starring Nanjani, The Lovebirds has the feel of a mid-budget studio comedy, whose strength is definitely the chemistry between the two leads. In fact, The Lovebirds was originally meant for theaters, but only became a Netflix film thanks to the pandemic. I do wish I could have seen The Lovebirds in a theater, instead of streaming it at home alone, as I suspect, like many comedies, it would have benefited tremendously from an audience enjoying it together. And that really makes a difference. Luckily, Nanjani and Ray are funny enough to make it work under the circumstances. The Lovebirds may not be a new classic, but it is a lot of fun, and I do recommend it. But as a contemporary comedy, you should expect some coarse humor. An apt comparison, I think, is to the many other recent one crazy night comedies. Comedies like Date Night Itself, Super Bad, and Game Night. And following in their footsteps, The Lovebirds offers a wild ride with plenty of action, good punchlines, and a romance that you can really root for. But what feels freshest, I think, is the mere fact of two leads of color taking on all the tropes of the genre and making it feel as modern as they do. That's The Lovebirds, now streaming on Netflix. Yes, love is definitely in the air. Another new romantic comedy, equally contemporary, but even better that's popped up on Netflix, is The Half of It, about a shy, small-town, fish-out-of-water Chinese-American straight-A student who finds herself helping the school jock woo the girl that they both secretly love. And in the process, each teaches the other about the nature of love as they find a kind of friendship in this most unlikely of ways. Written and directed with tart intelligence by Alice Wu and featuring some dazzling breakout performances by Leia Lewis and Daniel Damar, this breezy, self-aware, and utterly adorable coming-of-age tale is really pretty terrific. But what makes it so interesting is the film's understanding of the different versions of ourselves that make young people especially so self-conscious. You know, the version of ourselves that we may want to project to the world, but then there's that version of ourselves that others see and which may have nothing to do with how we want them to see us. Well, the half of it finds great humor in the gap between the two. And then there's that secret, barely understood self we have inside and learn, if we're lucky, to share with another person which is when the half of it becomes most poignant. You know, I call this a romantic comedy, but in many ways it's less a love story than a funny, touching, and energetic look into the nature of friendship, as well as self-discovery. That's the half of it, now streaming on Netflix. Another slightly older contemporary romantic comedy and streaming on CBC Gem for free is The F Word from 2014, starring Daniel Radcliffe and Zoe Kazan. If you haven't seen it, it's a lovely treat. Radcliffe, of course, has mostly been overshadowed by the Harry Potter movies, but he has this great facility for self-deprecating humor and is always, I think, just a little awkward in a way that makes him easy for audiences to connect with. And here he's paired with Zoe Kazan, who was in The Big Sick, by the way, with uh, Kumai Nanjani. 
And she's like some Diane Keaton meets Betty Boop. She just has that face and, you know, those big eyes that always seem to be on the verge of glistening. The F Word is directed by Michael Douse and written by Elaine Mistai, both Canadians. And it's set in Toronto, so this is very much a Canadian film, even if Radcliffe and Kazan are not Canadian, I mean. The story, well, such as it is, they meet at a party and hit it off, but it turns out Kazan already has this longtime boyfriend. Still, there's no denying the connection between them, leading the pair to wonder, what if the love of your life is your best friend? Hence the title, The F Word, F for Friend. Naturally, complications ensue, the plot thickens, but it's really the chemistry between Radcliffe and Kazan that make the F-word so irresistible. The delightful secondary performance by Adam Driver as Radcliffe's fast-talking confessional sidekick and music by Montreal's Patrick Watson, Watson excuse me, are additional benefits. That's the F-word, one of the most charming of contemporary rom-coms and streaming for free on CBC Gem. All three of these romantic comedies feature young characters, but there are two pretty good recent contemporary comedies featuring slightly older ones, both Late Night, though not a rom-com, and Longshot, which is. Late Night from 2019 is the kind of appealing, adult-friendly comedy that studios are really struggling to make these days. Mindy Kaling plays the plucky, fish-out-of-water Molly, who lands her first writing job on delightfully wicked Emma Thompson's character's faltering late-night talk show. Hence the title, Late Night. The film is bolstered by consistent humor, a smart script, and winning performances by the entire cast. And while it sends up the world of late-night TV, it also makes use of its setup to dig into buzzworthy social issues, from diversity in the workplace to women continuing to fight for equality, even once they've landed a job. But it does so always with humor. Like Mindy Kaling's character of Molly, Late Night is very likable, doing that rare thing of being a deft and intelligent entertainment that can touch on serious topics because being funny is something it never forgets to do. Now, this is not exactly a rom-com, and it's more of a workplace comedy, but it's still something very similar in structure, especially in the way Molly finds self-definition and some form of fulfillment, just like in a rom-com. That's Late Night, streaming on Amazon Prime. Also streaming on Amazon Prime, and also from 2019, is Longshot, starring Charlize Theron and Seth Rogen, but in a considerably raunchier rom-com than any of the aforementioned. This one is about an unemployed journalist, played by Rogan, who rekindles his relationship with a woman he knew from childhood, played by Theron, who happens now to be the U.S. Secretary of State. She then, somewhat impulsively, hires him to be her speechwriter as she prepares for a presidential run. And soon their working relationship becomes a romantic one as the mismatched pair encounter all sorts of complications in a traditional rom-com sort of way. 
The comedy in the film works quite well, with a somewhat expected blend of sweetness, wit, and off-color humor. But it is the romantic element of the film that may catch audiences off guard, as Rogan and Theron do indeed have strong on-screen chemistry. Theron in particular feels extremely credible as a pulled-together politician looking to loosen up. In the scene in which she has to negotiate an international hostage crisis while coming down from the drug ecstasy is truly a treat. The often very funny long shot isn't going to save the romantic comedy all on its own, but it does help to keep it alive, along with the others that I've mentioned. That's the R-rated long shot, now streaming on Amazon Prime. But if your taste is more in the direction of romantic comedies from Hollywood's golden era, both Amazon Prime and the library's Hoopla Digital have a genuine treasure in Gregory LaCava's 1936 screwball comedy classic, My Man Godfrey. Featuring the peerless William Powell and Carol Lombard, My Man Godfrey is effortlessly fast, diamond-sharp comedy based on an upstairs-downstairs-style premise before true love wins out in the end. That's My Man Godfrey, streaming on Amazon Prime and Hoopla Digital. Meanwhile, over at iTunes, you can find one of my all-time favorite romantic comedies, The Lady Eve, from 1941, which is the gleaming zenith of writer-director Preston Sturge's considerable career. Sexy, con lady Barbara Stanwyck was born to deliver his lickety-split dialogue, and her zesty partnership with Henry Fonda's nebbish zoologist is the opposites attract dynamic to beat them all. That's The Lady Eve on iTunes. And last, but certainly not least, among classic rom-coms to consider watching this week, or any other that it is available, is His Girl Friday on Turner Classic Movies at 6.15pm on Thursday, June 4th. His Girl Friday is nothing less than one of the funniest movies ever made, with Cary Grant at his comic best as an unscrupulous Chicago newspaper editor who wants to undermine Rosalind Russell's ex-wife and star reporter's planned marriage to Ralph Bellamy's dull insurance man from Albany, New York. The ensuing chaos is genuinely hilarious, though you may have to watch it numerous times to absorb every gag. With great verbal athleticism, this film earns its reputation as one of the fastest-talking comedies ever made. That's His Girl Friday from 1940 on Turner Classic Movies at 6.15 p.m. on Thursday, June 4th. Okay, moving on now. Israeli television has really taken off in the last 10 years, with some series even remade for wider audiences in English. I'm thinking of Homeland and HBO's In Treatment, as well as the newish, very contemporary HBO show Euphoria. So let's take a look at some recent Israeli fare, all of which is available on Netflix, and which I think may be worthy of being binge-watched. Have you heard of Fauda? I talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but I'm going to mention it again now. This fast-paced global hit follows the adventures of an undercover army unit where Israelis disguise themselves as Arabs and infiltrate the West Bank or Gaza in order to catch terrorists. 
What sets Fauda apart from standard good guy versus bad guy thrillers is the way in which each side of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is shown as both human and yet deeply flawed. Now, some have compared Fauda to the classic HBO series, The Wire, and I tend to agree with that, as both explore difficult subject matter with a kind of depth and sensitivity not often seen on TV. All three seasons of the show, whose title means chaos, by the way, in Arabic, are available to watch now. That's Fauda on Netflix, in both Hebrew and Arabic with English subtitles. Now, something we've circulated at the library on DVD, but which is also available for viewing on Netflix, is the high-concept two-season thriller Hostages. This show begins the night before a brilliant surgeon is set to operate on the Israeli Prime Minister, when suddenly four men invade her home and take her family hostage. Their one demand, make sure the Prime Minister does not survive his operation. This is a dramatic nail-biter with stunning performances from the entire cast and was made for a binge session if there ever was one as you're going to have a hard time taking your eyes away. That's Hostages on Netflix, in Hebrew, with optional English subtitles. And do ignore the inferior U.S. remake of the same title, with Tony Collette and Dylan McDermott, which CBS canceled after one season. And watch this original instead. The drama series Shtizzle has perhaps surprisingly gotten lots of viewers obsessed with the lives and relationships within its prominent multi-generational ultra-orthodox family. The show mostly follows the artistic misfit son within the family, his rocky relationship with his prickly father, and his quest for love. But it also concentrates on the sister who is stuck in a difficult marriage raising six children all of which is within the boundaries of their strict social world in a Jerusalem neighborhood. This series, in two seasons, is said to be both thoroughly engrossing and poignant to watch. I've not seen it, unfortunately. That's Stizzle, available on Netflix, in both Hebrew and Yiddish, with English subtitles. The fourth Israeli series that I would like to mention features comic actress Sasha Baron Cohen playing it completely straight as real-life Mossad agent Eli Cohen in the six-part miniseries The Spy, which was written and directed by Homeland creator Gideon Raff. The Mossad agent Cohen worked undercover in Syria from 1961 to 1965 and developed very close ties with the political and military hierarchy there before becoming chief advisor to the Minister of Defense. The Spy unspools as an intense tale of suspense, building to a conclusion that is as devastating as it is inevitable. And Sasha Baron Cohen's impressively restrained and charismatic performance helps the series transcend some of its more conventional moments. The Spy is, at its best, a character study, of an individual torn between two worlds and two identities, and in so doing, 
makes for a gripping account of the very greatest sacrifice sometimes required for heroic service. That's the six-part Israeli series, The Spy, on Netflix and in Hebrew and Arabic with English subtitles. Okay, before ending, let's take a brief look at what's coming up on the traditional television channels this week. On CBC TV at 7 p.m. on Saturday, May 30th, is Dr. Cabby, a charming, uniquely Canadian comedy from 2014 about a recent medical school graduate from India named Deepak, who's eager to start his career in Canada. But despite a nationwide shortage of doctors, none of Toronto's hospitals will accept his Indian degree. So he becomes a cab driver, the city's go-to job for the overeducated and the underemployed. But during a fair, he delivers a woman's baby in the back of his cab, which launches Deepak's career as a mobile freelance doctor, even if it means he has to practice without a license. And it also jumpstarts Deepak's romance with the new mom. So this would fit in very nicely with the rom-coms I mentioned earlier. The tone of the film is generally quite light, and though not perfect, Dr. Cabby has enough cute moments and winsome performances to make it worth a glance. That's Dr. Cabby on CBC TV at 7 p.m. on Saturday, May 30th. On ABC TV, starting at 2 p.m. on Sunday, May 31st, are three episodes of The Last Dance. And even if you knew nothing about 1990s U.S. basketball, no matter. This tale of basketball legend Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls' 1997-1998 season will still make for riveting viewing as a fascinating documentary glimpse into the psyche of one of the greatest sportsmen of all time. That's The Last Dance on ABC TV starting at 2 p.m. on Sunday, May 31st. And finally, on CTV at 8 p.m. on Sunday, May 31st, is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade from 1989, one of Steven Spielberg's most relaxed, confident, and most purely enjoyable movies. As they race to find the Holy Grail, the Harrison Ford, Sean Connery father and son team gives this erstwhile action film unexpected emotional depth, but with a light touch, always with a light touch. This is probably my favorite of the Indiana Jones movies. And though it's far from being a rom-com, or is it? Because of the great chemistry between Harrison Ford and Sean Connery. It's lots of fun. On CTV, at 8 p.m. on Sunday, May 31st. Anyway, that's all for now. You've been listening to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. I hope you've enjoyed this installment and will join me next Friday for more recommendations of what to watch and where to watch it. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at CodeStLuke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page, or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. Bye-bye and happy viewing.
Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you are listening at 2 p.m. on our phone line, we have another special item for you. Have a great day. Thank you.